0: Hey everybody, thanks for joining us from around the Erie area and actually from around the nation. And I know what you're thinking, when is this thing going to end? When can we gather together again? And to be honest, we don't know. But what we do know is that the church isn't something you go to. Church isn't the building and it isn't any activity we do. The church is you. The church can't be canceled because it's not what we do, it's who we are. So whether you're still in bed or in your family room, whether you're watching on your phone, your laptop, your tablet, who knows? Who knows? Wherever you are and however you're watching, I want to say a big welcome to you, church. Now, before we get started, there are a couple of things that I want to touch on. Number one, the next two Sundays are going to be special. Here's why. Next Sunday, April 5th, we're going to be taking communion together as a church. And here's how that's going to work. Pastor Scott will be our host next week, and he'll lead us all in taking the elements together. What's different, obviously, is that you'll need to have the juice and bread ready in your home. Now there's nothing special about the brand of grape juice you have or whether you use saltines or homemade Amish bread because that's a thing right now. These elements are merely outward symbols that represent the greater spiritual reality of Jesus' body broken and his blood poured out for us. Next week, we'll remain obedient to Jesus' commands to do communion in remembrance of him. So make sure you have something prepared for communion next Sunday as we partake as a church family. The following Sunday is Easter. And I don't know about you, but I've never not celebrated Easter with my church family. We're not sure yet whether we can meet in person or not. But remember that our participation as the church doesn't mean that we have to come to the building. So if we're still quarantined in two weeks, we'll bring Easter to you. It'll be a special digital service on April 12th at 1045 a.m. on Facebook. You can find our Facebook page by searching First Alliance Church Erie on whatever device you're on right now. And this is a great opportunity to invite a friend, maybe a coworker or a neighbor who's been reluctant to come to church. This year, they can attend Easter service from their own home. Lastly, if you're like 85% of churchgoers around the nation, you typically would drop off tithes and offerings when you come to service on Sundays. Since our physical gatherings have been canceled for the time being, we made it easy for you to send those gifts in from the comforts of your own home. You can simply go to facerie.org slash giving and click the Give Now button. You can give a one-time gift, or if you're like me and need it to just come out of your account automatically, you can set up a recurring gift. Again, that's facerie.org slash giving, and click the Give Now button. During these uncertain times, your tithes and offerings are more important than ever. So for however often and however much or little you give, we say a big thank you. Now as we transition into our time of worship, I want to read a passage that may be familiar to you. Most scholars believe that David wrote Psalm 23 later on in life his son absalom had rebelled against him and david was once again on the run life wasn't quite looking the way that he thought it would unforeseen circumstances put him in a rough spot and he had two options he could either despise god for what he was going through or lean into him during an uncertain time david chose the latter and i believe god is calling us to do the same thing in our own uncertain time the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures Dear God, right now, this morning, I, I pray to you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would be with us in this moment, in these uncertain times. I pray that you would be with every family who's gathering together right now, wherever they're watching. I pray that you would provide peace and comfort. I pray that you would lead us beside still waters, that you would lead us in paths of righteousness, that you would restore our soul, Lord. I pray for this gathering. I pray for this time together. And as we worship and learn from your word, that you would speak specifically to each person watching. Speak to their soul. Speak to their heart. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, church, we are able to gather uh, to worship and to sing today, and uh, it might not be in the church building itself um, or in a room gathered together uh, like we are right now, but uh, wherever you are, it's a, it's a time to sing and to lift up our praises, and we were reminded this week in Philippians 4... Uh, that the lord is near and as psalm 23 just reminded us that our savior is with us and we know that the lord inhabits the praise of his people so would you join with us as we lift up a song of praise and it might just be a song or a prayer but would you join with us as we lift up our voices to the lord E vision Father God, we thank you that you are near, you are close to us. And as we walk through the, the valleys, as we walk through the shadows, Lord, we, we praise you that you are constantly beside us, leading us forward. And Lord, we thank you that you see our needs and you supply every single one of those needs. You are so, so good to us and we do not deserve it. So Lord, we just offer up the praise this morning. We say thank you for being such a loving Father to us. Lord, we praise you. We give you glory. And Jesus, in your holy and awesome and wonderful name we pray. Amen.
2: Hey, FAC family. Pastor Mike here. I hope you're doing well. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Uh, We're going to be reading from verse uh, 54 and we're going to travel together actually through the beginning of chapter 8. We'll read all the way to verse 3. It's amazing as I reflect back to last December uh, when I charted out Acts. I knew that we were going to go through Acts and I would uh, chart out our time through Acts and I scheduled which passages would be preached on uh, which Sundays, Uh, yet in God's sovereignty, Uh, He knows exactly what passages we need to study in such a time as this. And so uh, I'm excited to share this with you. And I think as we go through this passage, you'll find that it's uh, much more relevant to what we're going through today than you may uh, initially realize. And so let's go ahead and take a look at it, uh, starting in verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. This is what it says. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Would you pray with me as we begin taking a look at God's word together? Heavenly Father, we lift up our time to you, and I would ask, Father, as we study your word together, um, that your spirit would move in our midst, Father, that your spirit would illuminate these words, uh, and that you would translate these words in our minds, and would we know the truth of your word, and would it reach our hearts, so that we may be transformed. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. It's April 8th, 1945, uh, just one month before Germany would surrender in World War II, and a 39-year-old Lutheran pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is sitting in the Flossenbürg concentration camp. He's been in prison at this point for more than a year and a half, and Uh, He's in prison for his association with uh, conspirators who unsuccessfully plotted to assassinate Hitler. Uh, One source says that Bonhoeffer is largely regarded as one of the leading Christian thinkers in the 20th century. If you're interested in his story, uh, an author by the name of Eric Metaxas has written a wonderful biography on Bonhoeffer. Uh, I'd highly recommend it if you're looking for good uh, reading material while you're in quarantine. Uh, However, I am going to spoil the ending for you right here if you aren't familiar with Bonhoeffer's story. Uh, Metaxas recounts Bonhoeffer's final moments at the end of the biography. Uh, April 8th, it was a Sunday, and at the request of his cellmates, uh, Bonhoeffer conducted a church service. He read from Isaiah 53 5 and from 1 Peter 1 3, and he explained these verses to his cellmates. And after he concluded the service uh, with a time of prayer, no sooner did two men come in uh, to the cell. And Metaxas writes that these two men were in civilian clothes and they said, prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us. To the prisoners, those words come with us had come to mean only one thing, and that was the scaffold. And so Uh, Bonhoeffer began saying his goodbyes to his fellow inmates, and he turned to one and said, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. This is the end for me, the beginning of life. The next morning between 5 and 6 a.m., Bonhoeffer's verdict would be read out to him, and he was hanged moments later. The only account that we have from his death was that of the prison doctor. Uh, This is what the doctor recalled in regards to Bonhoeffer's death. Take a look at what uh, he has to say. He he said, Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison guard, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed up the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. In Christianity, we are always talking about the importance of uh, how to live in a way that uh, glorifies God. How to live in a way that is entirely submissive to the will of God. But we don't often give thought to what it means to die in a way that is entirely submissive to the will of God. We, we don't give much thought to how we must die in a way that glorifies God. Bonhoeffer's story, as tragic as it is, is a testimony from someone in our recent history that is merely following in the footsteps of that first Christian martyr, the great martyr Stephen that we read about moments ago. We could take the words from the doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's death, and we could certainly say the same thing about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, apart from Jesus himself, serves as the perfect model for what it means to die entirely submissive to the will of God. And so let's explore this a bit together verse by verse. We'll start in verse 54. This story comes uh, on the tail end of Stephen's speech that he gives for most of chapter 7. To refresh your memory, Stephen was in court uh, before the high priest and before the council, and he was on trial uh, for blasphemy against God. However, by the end of the speech, Stephen makes the bold claim that he is actually not in rebellion against God, but rather... The ones who are in rebellion against God are the high priest and the council and the other Jewish people who played a part in the betrayal and, and the murder of Jesus. And, and so he accuses them of this. And in verse 54, we read about how Stephen's listeners react. the Their the, the reaction is this visceral and emotional response of anger. They are just enraged. They are furious. If you were an outsider observing this moment, you would see this visual response. The interesting thing about anger is that it's an internal emotion that can overtake our outward appearance. And this is what happens, right? It says that they were grinding their teeth at Stephen. They're like a pack of wolves, this this image of grinding or gnashing of teeth, it's, it's a sign of hostility. It's a sign of rage. And it's actually used seven different times in the Gospels, and it's always in reference to the ones who are excluded from the kingdom of God, and they are just bitterly angry at God and his righteousness. It's the ones that have rejected God, And then somehow they're surprised and angry to find that they, when they reject God, God in turn rejects them. And it's a very bitter reaction. And Stephen can see this reaction now. Their anger has manifested itself. He can see them just grind their teeth at him. And perhaps as Stephen witnesses this, this would escalate Stephen's reaction. In such altercations, typically as one side of the argument increases in visual intensity, the other side will actually rise to the occasion. You know this, you've been in fights before, right? When when you're fighting with somebody, when you're having a verbal altercation and and somebody starts getting visually angry and they start yelling, then you start yelling and then you just kind of yell over each other and it creates this ticking time bomb of hostility. But this isn't so with Stephen. His reaction is much different. Take a look at verses 55 and 56. Let me go ahead and read it again. It says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. A few things that I want to consider here. Uh, First, take note that even in the midst of persecution, Stephen continues to be full of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that I say continue is because if there is one characteristic of Stephen that is consistent through his entire story in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, it's that Stephen is always full of the Holy Spirit. This is actually the fourth time in the last two chapters of Acts that Stephen is explicitly described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's even a fifth time that it's alluded to. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit when he humbly served the widows. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit when he's preaching in public. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit when he debated with others that disagreed with him. And now, once again, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit when he's being persecuted. And this one, this final one, uh, this final occurrence is an important one to grasp. Because when we talk about being full of the Holy Spirit, we typically associate his fullness with ministry activity, with church work, with building up the body of believers, Right, Like this, when somebody preaches a sermon, people say, oh, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Or when somebody serves the church, they use their God-given gifts to serve the church, people remark, oh, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps when a friend offers up some wonderful biblical wisdom, people say, oh, he's full of the Holy Spirit. That person is full of the Holy Spirit. But very rarely... When somebody suffers, do we say, oh, he's full of the Holy Spirit? One commentator says that we should certainly relate the Holy Spirit's fullness to ministry activity. That's valid. But we also must not forget that the Spirit's fullness is also given to us to prepare us for suffering. The... Commentator goes on to explain that we must develop a theology of darkness. Here in Stephen's darkest hour, he is full of the Holy Spirit. And what does he see? He sees the glory of God. And he sees Jesus Christ exalted on high, standing next to God the Father. And then he goes on to explain this vision that he's having. He's telling everybody that the heavens have been opened up to me. The heavens have opened. How this is written suggests that it's actually God who's pulling back the the curtain. He's peeling back the curtain. It's nothing that Stephen has done. No, this is a grace of God to reveal himself visually during Stephen's darkest hour. And Stephen... And that explains that the heavens have been opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Um, we see that phrase, uh, Son of Man, is actually used as a title in, in Scripture. The first time it's used as a title in the old, is in the Old Testament book of Daniel, In that book, Daniel is having a prophetic vision of God the Father, giving the throne to somebody that looks like a human, that looks like a son of man. But in Daniel's vision, the son of man was not just given the throne, but he's also given authority, and he's given glory, and he's given sovereign power. And then fast forward to the gospel accounts, the gospel writers, and you'll come to find that the son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's his favorite self-designation. Uh, he refers to himself as the Son of Man more than 80 times, more than anything else. And this really culminates in Jesus' trial. Uh, l- listen to how Mark records it in his gospel. When, when Jesus is on trial in a, sim- in a similar fashion to Stephen, this is what Mark writes uh, about the event. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is claiming to be the prophesied Messiah. He's telling the high priest that he will be exalted to the right hand of God. And in that moment, if we were to keep on reading, we would come to find that the, the high priest doesn't like this. He starts ripping his clothes, and he just starts crying, This is blasphemy! Who do you think you are, Jesus, to refer to yourself as the Son of Man, the coming Messiah, who's going to be divine, and who's going to sit at the right hand of God? This is absolutely blasphemy. And so when Stephen also indicates that the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God, he's giving this testimony that he has indeed been exalted to to the right hand of God, just like he said he would. Imagine what it would be like for the high priest to hear this. This is the same high priest Trying Stephen that tried Jesus, and now he's hearing Stephen give testimony that there Jesus is, a man of his word, exalted on high, standing at the right hand of God. Uh, We see that Stephen indicates that he's standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is a little bit of an odd description, because anywhere else that the Son of Man is mentioned, he's always sitting. All of the commentators I read on this agree that there is some sort of significance to this, but they're not 100% sure what this could potentially mean. There's some gray area here of why he would be standing in this vision rather than sitting. But all the commentators do agree that Jesus standing communicates the message that Jesus is supporting Stephen. He's affirming Stephen's testimony of himself, and he is coming to his side. Jesus is an advocate of Stephen. In my entire high school career, I only ever got into one physical fight, at school now, I know some of you may think that that 's impressive that I made it all the way through high school and only gotten one fight, uh, but I also know that there might be many more of you that are straight up judging me right now. okay I, I get it right. I can feel your judgment coming through the screen right now uh, i 'm just going to ask you that you don 't judge uh, because the other guy started it right. This, this is what happened. I was in the locker room after gym class. And this kid that was twice my size decided that it would be funny to throw a bar of soap at me, and it hit me right in the face. And then he came up, and he started messing with me, right? And he started bullying me, and so I actually threw him against the locker across from me. As soon as he recovered, he began to approach me again, and at this point, my closest friends, my buddies that are sitting down, they actually stand up and they kind of get closer to, to, my, to my side because they knew something was about to go down and they had my back. I had advocates at my side that stood up and were ready to go, that were ready to support me. It's a silly illustration, I know, and I'll let you use your imagination to how that whole thing ended, but this is what I think of when I read about Jesus standing for for, for Stephen. Uh, Stephen had an advocate in the exalted Jesus, and what an advocate he is, the son of man who overcame death. Well, that was enough for the crowd. They heard everything they needed. In fact, in verse fifty-seven, they just stopped listening. They they started ignoring Stephen altogether. It says that they that they they were so angry that they cried out. They're shouting out, and they and they stopped their ears. Right? There's a disconnect. They just start shouting out. Oh goodness, Stephen! Would you just would you just stop talking? Just, just stop saying that. Just shut your mouth, Stephen. Right? Just just be quiet. And then. Like a herd of linebackers, they charged toward him to take him down. They just go into an absolute frenzy and a riot starts. They're so angry that they don't even let Stephen finish. And you'll notice in the text that there is no formal verdict here. Remember, Stephen is on trial. Yet the high priest never chimes in to declare sentencing. No, there is no formal legal process at this point, most likely because the crowd took the matter into their own hands. This is mob justice, and Stephen at this point doesn't stand a chance because all legal formality has been chucked out the door. They drag him outside the city, and they stone him. And in the process of stoning them, they take off their outer garments. This would be uh, like heavy cloaks. And they take off these outer garments because it's not really conducive to throw stones at somebody when you have a heavy cloak on. And so they, they, they take off their outer garments, this, these giant cloaks, and they throw them down at the feet of a man named Saul. Saul is going to be a very important character through the rest of Scripture. We'll get there. But right now, he's just kind of this evil man lurking in the background. He's just prowling about in the shadows right now. And he is extremely pleased with what's happening in this moment. To to look ahead, when we read verses uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul approved of this. Uh, We'll later find out that Saul is from the city of Tarsus, which is located in, in the region of Cilicia. And if you remember back to Acts 6, where this altercation started, some of the Jews that began debating with Stephen were from Cilicia. Now, this may be reading into the text a little too much, but there's certainly a chance that Saul was one of the initial instigators of this entire altercation. And as Stephen is being stoned, we get a glimpse of his final moments. He dies in a way that's parallel to Jesus' death. As Stephen dies, as he's being stoned, he turns to prayer like Jesus did. As Stephen dies, he commits his spirit to heaven like Jesus did. As Stephen dies, he then calls for the forgiveness of his executioners like Jesus did. It would be perfectly justified for Stephen in this moment to curse his enemies. As, as Jesus is standing in this moment, uh, an advocate to Stephen, it would be reasonable for Stephen to call down judgment on his persecutors. It would not come as a surprise to anyone if he called out to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you just, would you just punish them? Would you, would you smite them with all of your power? He had every right to do so because he was an innocent man, but he doesn't. No. In the midst of being brutally murdered, in this act of, this striking act of compassion, He asks that his oppressors would be forgiven. Perhaps the most godly and righteous thing and holy thing that we can do in the midst of persecution is not to ask God to rain down his wrath on evil men and women, but rather to forgive them in hopes that they would turn from their evil ways. There's something to learn in the graciousness of how Stephen dies. I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. These people who stone Stephen are evil, and it only gets worse from there. As we venture into the first three verses of chapter 8, there is just a fierce fallout of this event. We read in, chat, in, in verse um, 1 that a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem to the point where Christians flee for their lives and are scattered throughout the neighboring regions. And in verse 3, we're reintroduced to Saul, right? the one who was watching the cloaks and who was smiling on as Stephen was murdered. We see in verse 3 that Saul was absolutely ruthless. He just starts ravaging the church. He relentlessly attempts to destroy it. The Christians' community life in this context was characterized by the gatherings that they would have in each other's homes. They found their strength in meeting with each other in their homes and having fellowship with each other in their homes, and now Saul is systematically dismantling their community. He's taking a horde of people and literally going house to house and violently dragging men and women off to prison. Could you imagine What these first believers are feeling in this moment. This is devastating. Imagine the children. Imagine what type of questions they would ask. Mommy, why, why are you crying, mommy? Daddy, why do we, why do we have to leave home? Why do we have to leave the house? Why do we have to be so secretive of this and quiet, Daddy? Well, why are my why are my friends being pulled out of their houses right now? Why are they being ripped from their homes? We can get a modern taste of what this is like when we look to Anne Frank's diary. If we can revisit World War II, that precious little Jewish girl who lost her life to the Nazis, the, the, the Nazis who were going house to house and ripping families from their homes. Anne Frank gives us just a taste of what these early Christians were probably feeling. Uh, listen to a portion from her diary uh, from April the, the April 11th entry, 1944, as she recounts just one of the many scares that they had. Uh, she writes, It was 10.30, then 11, not a sound. Father and Mr. Van Don took turns coming upstairs to us. Then, at 11.15 a noise below. Up above, you could hear the whole family breathing. For the rest, no one moved a muscle. Footsteps in the house, the private office, the kitchen, then on the staircase. All sounds of breathing stopped. Eight hearts pounded. Footsteps on the stairs, then a rattling at the bookcase. This moment is indescribable. Now we're done for, I said. And I had visions of all 15 of us being dragged away by the Gestapo that very night. For the believers in Acts 8 verse 3, this moment is so dark. This moment is so Hopeless. This is the darkest day for that new community because to this point, none of Jesus' followers had been put to death. Sure, they've been warned and sure, they've been beaten, but never had one of them died for it. But now one has, and persecution has been unleashed in the city of Jerusalem. And in the midst of such a tragic moment, I wouldn't be surprised if people called out to God. God, where are you in my darkness? Jesus, you, you promised us right before you left that you would be with us to the end of the age. Where are you now? Would you just show yourself? What happened to all that talk about victory? We are dying here. Where is the hope in such a hopeless situation? Luke, who's the author of Acts, wrote this book about 30 years after these events took place. And so he has the benefit of writing this account in hindsight. Luke is looking back at this painful moment, this dark time, and he's able to reveal the hope. Where is the hope in such a hopeless moment? It's actually in Acts 8 verse 4. I held back from reading this earlier, but let's look Add it together. Right now, it's a very simple, short verse. It says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. There is so much hope in this verse. Because that word scattered that Luke uses is significant. Because in the original Greek, he actually didn't use the generic term for the word scattered. Instead, he chose a word that is closely related to the word that the gospel writers use to describe what the farmer is doing in the parable of the sower. Three out of the four gospels include this parable, which tells the story of a farmer who goes to sow a seed. Or the NIV would say he goes to scatter the seed. The picture that we get is he's walking down the path and as he walks, he's, he's reaching into his little pouch and he's grabbing a handful of seed and he's just throwing it every which way. He's throwing it out, he's throwing it up in the air and, and wherever the, the seed falls as he walks down the path uh, is, is where crops could potentially um, rise up. After Jesus tells this parable, he explains that the seed being scattered into all different crazy directions is actually the word of God. The first part of this parable represents the gospel being proclaimed and Acts 8.4 gives us a similar picture. Those who were being scattered, those who were dispersed, went on to preach the word of God wherever they landed. They are like the seed in this parable as they land in various places, as the farmer reaches in his bag and disperses believers every which way in his sovereignty across the map. The gospel follows closely uh, along with them. And the picture that we'll get in the rest of Acts is that this spread of the gospel is simply uncontrollable and unmanageable for the opposition. Because people left and right from all across the map are becoming spiritually alive by the good news of Jesus Christ. This is probably a poor illustration, but as you check the stats of the coronavirus every day and as you see the number of cases and as you as you look at the maps where this, this virus is popping up and jumping every which direction every day, this these maps are what the gospel looked like. The gospel was spreading in an uncontrollable, unmanageable way every which way all over the map. And we'll even come to find... That Saul, that evil man who was ripping people from their homes, who was persecuting Christians left and right, Saul, in Acts chapter 9, becomes infected with the gospel. He comes face to face with the risen King Jesus, and he is radically transformed. You may be familiar with Saul by his other name. His Roman name, Paul. And you you see Saul would go on to become one of the most influential men in Christian history. Later on in Acts, Stephen's death will be referenced three times as kind of a particular turning point in the story of the gospel's spread. Stephen's death and the persecution of the church served as the catalyst to the message of Jesus going out into the world, being scattered among the nations. God allowed darkness so that the light of the world would be cast across the globe. You may be sitting in your living room right now watching this at home and thinking, well, that's nice, but in our current condition, there is no scattering. This is an anti-scattering. We're, we're being told to stay in our homes. We're on lockdown. This isn't what's happening for us in this dark time. This, isn't, this doesn't apply to us. If that's you right now and that's your thought, um, let me offer another thought about our current situation. Remember that in the parable of the sower, The seed is not necessarily people scattering. What's scattering is the word of God. And in our current condition, we in sorts are seeing a digital scattering of the word of God. This is what I mean by that. This past week, I have heard and I have seen accounts of multitudes of people who are watching these sermons who have never come to FAC on a Sunday morning. More people will watch this sermon and be exposed to the word of God than if we were present in this building, business as usual. It's comically ironic that the building is closed yet more people are hearing the word of God preached than would be if the building was open. And if that's just the case for FAC, for our church, imagine the stretch of the gospel right now across the universal church. So I know in the midst of this pandemic, I I, I know that it's dark. I know that it feels hopeless. I know that it feels like God is dormant. I know that it's hard to see, but I have to believe that there will be redemption in this. I have to know and believe what scripture says about our God, that he is not only able to redeem the darkest moments, but that he will redeem the darkest moments according to his perfect will and according to his perfect purposes. We may not get the privilege of seeing how such redemption unfolds like Luke did, but we have to believe it's there. We cry out to God, and He says, I know, I know you are experiencing pain, little one. I know that this is uncomfortable, little one. But please know that I am working and moving in your midst, even when it feels like I'm silent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that you are not silent. I believe, Father, um, that you are doing something. We would ask that your will would be done. And I would ask, Father, that if anybody is even watching this right now, that you would reveal yourself to them through Jesus Christ. Father, that in the midst of their darkness, they would see that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the hope of the nations. Father, I would ask uh, that everyone watching this would submit their lives to Jesus, uh, turn away from their sin and turn to him. We praise you, Father, for your goodness and your kindness to us. In your holy name I pray, amen. Let's go ahead and sing one more song together. Hey, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Before we close, it is our typical pattern here at FAC to make elders and pastors available for prayer after services. And so I I do want you to know that we're praying for the church daily here. Uh, But if you're watching this live broadcast through Facebook right now, uh, we do have some people that are standing by and willing to uh, pray for your requests right now. And so uh, if you'd like to request prayer, just send a message through the First Alliance Church page and uh, we'll get that and we'll pray for you. We'll even connect with you uh, through that avenue. Uh, and if you're watching this another time, you, you can always e- email uh, us at office at org, and our leadership team will be sure to pray for you uh, during our Tuesday morning uh, meetings will keep you in our prayers. And with that, let me read a benediction for you from Philippians uh, 4.7. It says, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God bless. Have a wonderful day.